Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Listening to Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. And welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, uh, the producer and co host of the show. And in the virtual studio today, as always, is my trusted colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co host and co founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hello, Greg. Beautiful day here in St. Augustine. How are you doing? St. Augustine, back in San Diego and no complaints. For those of you not familiar with Fred, he's a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, which is a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the advisory board. Oops going to delete this one, Fred, the Advisory Board of Care Innovations Validation Institute. Anyway, there's an update. Anyway, he's past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and Precision Medicine. Center. And now for today's special guest, Prashant Natarajan is the emerging, uh, works at Emerging Technologies and Oracle Health Sciences Business Unit. Uh, he's the Director of Product Strategy at Oracle, where he is responsible for business strategy, product management, and go-to-market solutions for a portfolio of informatics products and cloud services on population health, precision medicine, interoperability, and integrated little and big data analytics. Prashant received his chemical engineering degree from Mangalore University in India in 1998, his master's degree in technical and professional communications from Auburn University here stateside in 2005. He's a prior recipient of the SBC Chancellor's Endowed Fellowship for Graduate Research Prashant is a lead author or contributor to four books on analytics, machine learning, and AI, and precision medicine. He serves on the Board of Advisors for Council of Affordable Health Coverage. He's also Industry Advisor for Data Science and AI at UCSF CIAPM. I'm not quite sure. Oh, the Center. Oh, that's the that's uh, Atul Butte at the Center for uh, the California uh, Precision Medicine Initiative. Prashant currently serves as chairperson of the HIMSS NorCal Chapters Annual Innovation Conference and Showcase. So with that sort of um, troubled introduction, Fred, over to you. <laughs> Help us get to know Prashant and what he's up to at Oracle and beyond. Thank you so much, Greg. And Prashant, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, uh, Greg. And uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to two people whose work I have known professionally and personally over many years. 
few past lives. And at the outset, I just want to point out that uh, I'm speaking on my own behalf and not on behalf of my employer, Oracle, or any of the organizations you mentioned earlier that I'm affiliated with. And on that note, I would love to get this rolling. Thank you so yeah, much well, for the opportunity. Oh, you're most welcome, Prashant. It really is a, a pleasure to have you on the show. You've done so much, and I uh, did get an opportunity to take a look at your uh, the new book you're a co-author of, Demystifying Big Data Machine Learning for Healthcare. And I think we should sort of dive right into that. I mean, as you're well aware, there's all this huge excitement around big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Can you sort of just lay the groundwork of what those terms mean? Sure, and I think that's a very appropriate place to start definitions and semantics. So artificial intelligence is a term that has been around for quite some time, and some would argue that it's in its third era, so to speak, after a couple of efforts and false starts. And the work on artificial intelligence, just to go very quickly chronologically, dates back to World War II and the scientific development that took place after World War II, specifically in trying to get computers to behave or exhibit intelligence on par with machines. And the uh, gold standard still remains Alan Turing's Turing test, which is, you know, a machine has intelligence paraphrasing when you can't make out from the response whether it's a human or a machine that is responding. And the Turing test has been the gold standard of what artificial intelligence is. The field itself is defined uh, by many experts as the study of intelligent agents. That is an agent denoting a system or a device that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximize its chance of success at a certain task or to accomplish a certain goal. And the Central problems that AI research has been dealing with over these last 70 plus years include reasoning, uh, knowledge management, and planning, learning, which is something that we read and hear a lot about now, which is central to a lot of machine learning and AI, natural language processing in terms of going after data that is not just coming out of a structured uh, entity, but that is more unstructured voice and video and so on and so forth, sentiment and haptic analysis that make a perception and the ability to move and manipulate objects, which is robotics, uh, which is also an extension of what AI does in several cases. So AI is a broader term. Now some would quibble that the recent advent of a subset or a sub-discipline of AI, which is machine learning, has eclipsed its parent, as certain folks do. Um, I personally don't like to get into that debate of what's better now, because I think there's a role for all of these things to play, and I take a more uh, unified perspective of how data and machine learning and AI come together, as we'll discuss later. Machine learning specifically is a data-intensive method of using existing data to either create new data, extrapolate to create new data, new insights, new predictions. And the underlying principle of machine learning is generalization, 
which is using the data you have to generalize and apply it to use cases that you either don't know exist that you will discover, or the questions that you have that you don't have a human cognitive way of getting to today. There is not much of a debate about uh, what machine learning is. It is a data-intensive method, and given the fact that we live in a big data world uh, where we have all kinds of data coming in, data not just from structured systems in healthcare, EMRs and ERPs and registries and so on and so forth, we are also talking about structured data coming from devices, data being captured from home monitors and various uh, machines that whether it's imaging modalities or voice-based, machine learning does have an important role to play. So just to put all of these together, looking at these as a continuum, it's really data, which is data, all data, big data, and big data itself, we'll come to the definitions in healthcare because it's kind of different from what it is in e-commerce and retail and so on and so forth. It's really all data, little data, big data, apply machine learning on top of it, use that data to generalize and to create new insights and new predictions, prescriptive and predictive analytics, make it a part of workflow, and so on and so forth. And then also deploy what we write about in the book as contextually intelligent agents, which is using artificial intelligence agents that take advantage of these insights to actually accomplish something. Because otherwise the challenge is going to be that machine learning by itself, without the power of agents acting on the data, is almost going to be where we have some challenges with informatics today, which is you have things available, but we don't necessarily tie them to action to accomplish goals or tasks. So that entire cycle gets completed, in our opinion, with these contextual intelligence agents. So the continuum is data, machine learning, contextual intelligence, which brings the greatest value for healthcare. Got it. Um, so, and I think that's a good way to, to sort of simplify that whole discussion is you initially have the data, you do some machine learning algorithms up against it to gain new insights or ideas around that data, and you then use AI in a sense to take that data and make it relevant to the end user, whether that's a patient or a doctor or somebody else in the healthcare system? That's exactly that right. That's a very good thing. I would also just throw this other thing out there that the end user could also be another machine. It could be sure. a robot, it could be a chatbot, which could further then create more interactions with humans again. Got it, got it. So as you've as you've looked at these, and obviously everybody's, I mean, I hear this everywhere now, we got big data, we're doing machine learning. Where do, what makes healthcare, uh, a place for this, or why is it important in the healthcare continuum as you as you think about it from a from your perspective? So, I, I think there are several questions there and great questions. So I'll try to take them one at a time. So where are we today? Uh, I think we are somewhere. Big data in healthcare, I think, is kind of maturing in the hype cycle right now. Uh, a few years ago, uh, the, it almost seemed to be that any time a question was asked, hey, what's the, irrespective of the problem, the answer always seemed to be big data. Um, and I think we are moving past that right now. 
so, and some of the other industries outside of healthcare have discovered that that it's not just big data by itself. It really comes down to how do you query the data, how do you get value of the data, how do you get context. Just more data cannot be the answer, right? Uh, volumes don't matter as much in healthcare. And that may be a bit of a controversial statement, but it really is not based on a lot of research we are finding. And we'll come to that uh, very quickly. But uh, it really comes down to taking the data, finding the value out of it, and examining it within the context of veracity. Often we hear these various things about what big data is. How do you define data? And you typically hear of the three Vs or the four Vs, volume, uh, velocity, variety, and value. Uh, I would posit, as we have in the book, that in healthcare veracity matters too, uh, because the type of decisions we are taking here is not merely are you buying another product from me or not. In most cases, it has to do with either clinical outcomes or patient well-being, patient health, and a lot more things that are deeply far more personal and impactful than whether I sell you an additional DVD or not on the web. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with selling you a DVD. It's just that in healthcare, the context is different. Uh, we say, we, 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 our research showed very clearly that variety matters much more in healthcare than volume because other industries, e-commerce and retail, for example, at point of sale systems or e-commerce data, web advertising, gather far more amount of data in a day than most health systems do, frankly speaking, with their systems today in a week or a month. So, what we found out and which we wrote about extensively was in healthcare, the context really has to be value, variety, and veracity, which is what can you do with the data? How are you able to show that you're either able to improve outcomes in the population you serve both at the individual and the population level? Support various pop health and precision medicine initiatives effectively on one hand. And second, the part that we some of us don't like to talk about, but which is real, which is how do we also do that by, to use a cliche, bending the cost curve so that our services continue to be more uh, affordable without necessarily having negative outcomes. And so if you are able to show value from that end and we are able to focus on variety, which is using more data, little and big together in an integrated form to get that all-important context and semantics right in healthcare. And we are able to do it within the concept of data fidelity, which is examining and using the data in the context of its use. Then we will be able to get value out of it and we'll be able to get success out of it. Why, it has, uh, why is it important today in healthcare? Because in one way, Frankly, and this is my personal opinion, uh, I think uh, healthcare is personal. It's, it's Number one, it's personal. I don't think there's any argument there. Um, number two, it is one-fifth of the GDP and increasing. And we all want better healthcare as we grow older, and we want even better healthcare than what we had for our children and the others who are coming. And frankly speaking, I think we have a vested interest in making sure 
that we are able to take advantage of these emerging technologies that have done very well in places outside healthcare, and we are able to use those optimally in healthcare to answer these very important questions, questions that affect the person, affect society, affect governments, and affect all of us. Because as I like to say, healthcare is personal because each of us is going to be the recipient of it. And it behooves that we use every bit of data available across board to make that a better experience for everyone concerned, including the provider mm-hmm. and the patients. So this, I mean, obviously these these tools and techniques have been used in other industries very effectively. People always say that healthcare is different. Um, can you give some examples or areas where where this has has shown some uh, serious promise? Absolutely. Um, I, I think uh, again, if you take a look at what has happened in the book, we have about eight case studies across multiple clinical, financial, operational use cases that people have. And just to take a few into account, they all focus on one thing. They're all looking at variety of data. And that's one common thread, which is more data, broader data is good, not just EMR data in isolation, not just ERP data in isolation, because we have systems that do that today. So taking, adding more unique, novel new sources that doesn't necessarily have to be a device all the time. It could be a bit of unstructured data that we are bringing in. It could be some patient questionnaires that we are bringing in. So if you take a look at some of, at a broader level, uh, for example, the case studies we have, we have a couple over there where people are doing some really interesting stuff on combining clinical data from the EMR, adding patient questionnaire data to it, and also adding level three and level four genomic data analysis and building a complete picture of the patient for precision medicine where the individual is represented by the combination of not just their genotypic data or phenotypic data, but a combination of both, and then done in the right identity and context. So that's an example of where variety and big data has been put into place. And then they're also uh, applying some advanced analytics on it, some predictive and prescriptive analytics on it to get to new insights about cohorts that matter for researchers and for caregivers. Another example of a big data use case that we have is velocity, right? Um, one of the case studies in the book is about an organization, a provide, leading provider organization that's capturing vital signs and other data in real time from the patient's bedside. And then what they're doing with that data is coming up with a whole bunch of predictive analytics that looks closely at clinical outcomes and tries to come up with predictions on how the vital signs that are captured in real time, what impact they have on the immediate post-operative care plan and patient outcomes, and what do the vital signs tell us about how a patient is either going to respond to or recover from a certain procedure, surgical procedure. Uh, A third one looks at financial analytics, and this is variety of data from various structured sources and a couple of unstructured sources 
bringing those together in a lake, combining that with a warehouse to provide context, and then coming up with new predictive analytics on that leverages EMR data and claims data together, um, more a cost and quality use case. So what, what we found as a part of our research in writing the book was that the success stories that are happening are happening primarily in the integration space. In other words, it's all about integrating the data from various sources and bringing them together. And every one of these efforts goes beyond a specific silo. It's more than just EMR. It's EMR plus something, ERP plus something, EMR plus ERP plus device. And that's how people are getting value out of it, if that makes sense. So you really did talk about it's sort of it's really that variety of, of beginning to pull different pieces together. Um, one area obviously that's had a, a lot of interest, and you sort of touched on it with this in-home monitoring, is this explosive growth, the ability to bring in data from wearables or you know other devices or data from your phone, and actually have a stream going near nearly continuous real time. Is that one of the major opportunities out there to begin to? to use that to provide feedback or contextual stuff to an individual or a physician? That is one of the things, Fred, and if I may, I think there are two aspects to it. There's often the conversation that we have both within the context of home health and telemedicine about how do we make healthcare more accessible to people at their homes, and that's always a conversation that we keep having. I think the other conversation that we need to have as a society is what does the coming generation of millennials mean to this? Because I have been talking about this in other fora. I posit that millennials are far more open to sharing their data, including their healthcare data, than, well, I don't consider myself a millennial, I'd love to, uh, but then somebody like me or of an older generation and they are more open about it, and things like HIPAA would matter less, I would posit, to that generation. They are also much more comfortable with wearables and devices. And this conversation of where we are going with the Internet of Things or the Internet of Healthcare Things, as it's sometimes called, has to include all of those use cases, telemedicine and home health on one hand, taking advantage of capturing clinical observation data where it happens not necessarily waiting for a visit each time to track patient progress or a population's progress, but also the coming needs of the millennial population. And our system should be able to account for both of those. <laughs> yeah, and one of the, the concerns I've had or, or what I've seen is that we've, that we've got all these great devices out there. We've got people tracking all this stuff, but there's very limited feedback. And is that really where these contextual intelligent agents could come into play? That's exactly right, Fred. I think you hit the nail on the head over there. It's not just about agents that allow me to click and buy a service or get a referral, right? It's also about giving the user control about how their data is shared, what it is shared for, and giving them visibility and transparency into it. This goes into a separate conversation that I've been having with uh, some thought leaders, such as yourself, among others, on what does this new data economy really mean for healthcare? Because I think one of the conversations all of us are uh, 
and this was again my personal opinion, one of the conversations we are all skirting is what happens in this new world with devices? If I wear a certain device and you get the data, who does the data belong to? Does it belong to you as the facility? Or does it belong to me? Or does it belong to a third party somewhere in between? Right? I think these conversations of ownership and sharing and transparency need to get more focus. Uh, and it's some of, one of the things that I definitely have been uh, uh, talking about in evangelizing to a certain extent. I think we start need to think, we really need to think of this as a data economy for healthcare, where the individual is also, um, I hesitate to use the word monetized because that can be a very loaded term in certain cases. But the, I was about the, to bring that up, Rashad, so that's a good one. Keep going. <laughs> Uh, okay, since you are about to bring it up, let me state that. So I think we start need to talk about patient data monetization and personal data monetization. And again, this is where I'm happy that I'm only talking on my behalf because uh, it's a conversation that I think that's more than it's other stakeholders have to come into this. Many years ago at a different place that Fred, you and I are both familiar with, when we were doing disease management and case management and utilization management back in the day, we looked at incentivizing people about the age of 50. And this was at one of my previous employers uh, with something where if they went to the gym four times a week for 20 minutes a session and we could get the data back for that, we gave them a discount on their premium. And it worked pretty well because people like discounts on their premiums. And the question really was just getting that minimal data to make sure they went for a total of 4x 20 minutes and giving them a significant difference given where, you know, all of us pay insurance premiums today, we know what it is like. Um, giving them a 20% discount really mattered a lot. So how do we use these contextually intelligent agents to be able to also give the user control over their data? And frankly speaking, how do we give them a part of that monetization? And that monetization doesn't have to necessarily be a check at the end of the month. It could be a check at the end of the month. It could also be giving them a break on the services they are using today or giving them, frankly speaking, a free flu shot. Hey, why not? That sounds, I mean, and, and that's sort of what, what I think is an interesting conundrum sitting underneath this is that there's a lot of this data flowing around and it seems as if other everybody's benefiting off of it, except potentially the individual. And so at a minimum, you know, they should have, I would assume, have some control over the use of that data, as well as at least providing appropriate feedback that helps them better manage whatever it is they're trying to do with that device or that wearable, et cetera. And then obviously, if that data is shared out, the ability to at least share in some of that economic benefit would be a great, I think great for the individual. And it actually, potentially the individuals who first started that could could become a rapid market leader, I would assume, um, in any space that, that individuals want to start to share their data in if they began to do that. that that's right, Fred. I would just say that, you know, again, we have to think about the variety, right? Bringing that data together, uh, as somebody told me laughingly once, they said, all I have to do to fool my wearable into thinking that I've gotten my exercise is to go on my boat in Baltimore Harbor, spend 45 minutes and come back to shore. And my wearable will likely show that I've been exercising vigorously 
for 45 minutes. So it also, I'm not saying that that's what people will use the wearable for, but to use an extreme example. Uh, but combining that with family history, combining that with your genotypic data, and bringing that together in order to improve both your experience and outcomes, and something that we don't talk about enough also, provider satisfaction and the provider experience. Because one of the things we write about in the book also is big data doesn't necessarily mean now bombarding physicians and administrators with more data and more alerts and more agents. It means insulating them from the noise. And we have uh, demonstrated uh, responsibility to be able to convert that noise into insights of interest that are useful and actionable. And that yeah, and is that, when we take advantage of this. No, I think, and, and, and that brings up a great point that I think needs to be made is that just throwing this data out there, a lot of providers are saying, I don't want it. I don't want to see it because it just creates more liability for me. So by, by as you say, filtering that, I think that'll be critical in, in the going uh, years as we get into this. I'd really like to thank you, Prashant, for coming on. I think we're probably going to need to get you back to talk a little bit deeper into some of these other areas that you touched upon in your book. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. The pleasure is entirely mine, Fred and Greg. Appreciate your time. Well, there you have it. That'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our special guest, Prashant Natarajan, for his time and insights today. And just to clarify earlier, the CIAPM references the California Initiative to Advance Precision Medicine with Atul Butte, MD-PhD, its principal investigator. And just a preview, we were fortunate to catch up with Dr. Butte at Bio here in San Diego last week, and we'll post his interview with eFuturist shortly on this week in Health Innovation. Do follow Prashant's work at Big Data CXO on the web via www.bigdatacxo.com, and of course on Twitter at nat. A-R-P-R. And finally, if you're a hospital, health system, physician venture, or healthcare conference, and you're looking for social media marketing support, digital media content development, curation, engagement, or amplification, do ping me on Twitter via at2healthguru or via email greg with two g's at healthinnovationmedia.com. Until we meet again on Pop Health Week for my colleague, Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.